Welcome to Beyond the Summit, Trinity College's podcast that looks at accomplished alumni and asks them how they became who they are. Welcome to our second season, where we're spending time talking with alumni who have devoted their post-college careers to serving and helping others. I'm your host, Paul Sullivan, Trinity Class of 1995. With me today is Walt Harrison, Class of 1968. Walt has devoted his life to service in many forms. He served in the Air Force, rising to the rank of captain. He taught English in Germany and then returned to the United States where he taught at the college level. He began his work as an administrator at Colorado College before moving to the University of Michigan, where he received one of his advanced degrees. For 20 years, until 2018, he was the president of the University of Hartford, where he oversaw an expansive project to modernize its facilities. The library there is named for him. He also worked with the NCAA on various academic initiatives around sports. He even has a sports award that bears his name, the Walter Harrison Academic Cup. And he is a trustee of Trinity College. But it all started with a degree in English in 1968. Well, thanks for talking with me. Happy to be here. It's nice to have you tell people about my life. So I'm a history major, and that means I won't hold it against you that you were an English major. Fair enough? <laughs> I was almost a history major. Um, so you grew up in Pittsburgh. Tell me about that. You know, what did you do as a kid? What, what were your early years like before you came to Trinity? I was, uh, when I was born in Pittsburgh in Squirrel Hill. And um, when I was four and a half, we moved to a steel mill town 23 miles northeast of Pittsburgh on the Allegheny River uh, called Natrona Heights. Um, the Squirrel Hill and Natrona Heights are polar opposites in all sorts of ways. Squirrel Hill is a, a pretty well-to-do part of the uh, city of Pittsburgh. It's the, basically known as the, the Jewish part of Pittsburgh, although it's more diverse than that now. In my time, it was pretty much Jewish. Um, and then we moved to Natrona Heights, where we were one of about eight or nine Jewish families in a town of 11,000 people. So it, uh, I, I went from, of course, I was too young to really know what Squirrel Hill was like when I lived there, but I, we went back quite a bit because I had a lot of family there and we went to Temple there. So I, um, I, I went from, from being a, in a reasonably upper-class uh, neighborhood to living in a, in a very middle-class part of a town that was primarily blue-collar. My father and his father before him owned uh, a men's and boys clothing store in a nearby town called Tarentum, which is much the same kind of place that Natrona Heights is. I went to public high school there. Um, my mother had gone to a, a girls' school in Pittsburgh, but my father was a proud public high school graduate, and he felt that uh, I should be the same. Um, so I, I grew up in a town. I grew up in a town that was not Jewish as a Jew. Uh, and I, my, my father worked, my mother worked in the store. And this was in a time before there was um, a daycare. So they hired a, a friend to uh, help raise my sister and me. And that friend was African-American. Her name was uh, Elizabeth Cameron. So I grew up in a, in a mostly blue collar, Southern European, Eastern European town. Um, I grew up as a, a Jew who also was raised by, by blacks. 
So I had a really unusual and I think extremely rich um, childhood and um, did really well in high school. And um, when it came time to choose a college, my mother, who was a Bryn Mawr graduate, uh, wanted me to go to Haverford. And my father, who was a University of Michigan graduate, really didn't care where I went, but he wanted to make sure I at least applied to Michigan. So um, I applied. Uh, I felt trapped in, as a, somebody who was at least a budding intellectual, I felt trapped in a, in a blue collar town that was anti-Semitic and racist. And I, the, I thought New England was the center of the universe and I wanted to go to New England. So in addition to Michigan, which my father <laughs> insisted I apply to, I applied to Yale, Brown, and Trinity. Um, Yale, because I guess even at that age, uh, The Great Gatsby was one of my favorite books, and I thought of Yale as sort of the center of all civilization and knowledge. I'm not sure. I cannot tell you why I applied to Brown. Uh, probably it was another Ivy League school in New England. I don't really know. And I applied to Trinity primarily because a cousin of mine named John Cohen had been uh, 1952 graduate of Trinity, and he worked on me from the time I was old enough to talk about going to Trinity, just as my father worked on me about going to the University of Michigan. My mother worked on me about going to Bryn, or not to Haverford because I couldn't get into Bryn Mawr. <laughs> so um, I, I ended up, I did not get into Brown. I got into Michigan, Trinity, and Yale. And I chose Trinity primarily because John Cohen made sure I did. And he took me, after I'd been accepted at all three, he took me on a trip to Hartford so I could go to Trinity and he could meet his professors and go to, I love baseball. So we went to a baseball game and met Dan Jesse, who was the baseball coach then. and and um, you know, I just I went there because he he was a big influence in my life and he thought I should go there. I'm really glad I did. You know, whenever I ask an, an open ended question like that first question, I'm, I'm always, you know, intrigued and fascinated by, you know, what comes back. You, you, you could have told me anything and, and you, you told me about sort of how diverse and rich your your childhood was and then sort of, you know, conflicting cultures almost. When you think back to that as sort of a, a, a foundation of, of things that happen later in your life, what did that teach you? Sort of what grounding did that sort of, you know, upbringing outside of Pittsburgh, you know, as a, as a Jewish boy in a blue collar town with a, you know, a, a black nanny and all these competing, uh, you know, social and economic forces around you. What did that do to, you know, forming your, your, your mind and your outlook on life when you were, when you were just a teenager? I think uh, one thing I would certainly say is that it, it, I have always felt that I was an outsider. I was an outsider, essentially, as a Jew in a largely Christian town. Um, I felt because I got to know Liz Cameron and her husband, whose name was Jim Cameron, very well. And for two years in my in my sister in my life, because my father was very ill. We lived as much with them as we did with my parents. So I, I, I got to see what their life as another form of outsiders was like. And um, I also got to learn, the other thing it did is it taught me, I, have a, I believe, a pretty well-formed 
uh, understanding of, of how different cultures can be, but how much their values can be similar. So I know something of Jewish culture because I was raised in it. I know something of African-American culture because I was raised in it. And because I lived in a town that was primarily white and Christian, I think I know something about uh, Roman Catholicism and Episcopalians and my, my Boy Scout troop was at a Methodist church. And you know, so I, I just think I learned a lot about the, the whole uh, crazy quilt of what American culture is. And I, uh, I think that's basically what I learned from it. When you arrived at, at, at Trinity in what, the fall of 1964, with that, you know, really rich uh, childhood and of course, you know, the, the pressure from, from this, this cousin of yours to go, what was it like? What was it like when you first stepped on campus? What was the feeling, you know, how did you navigate your, your way as this, you know, kid from outside of Pittsburgh coming to, to Trinity in, in 64? Two, two things. Uh, Trinity, of course, in those years was very different than it is now. I mean, we were, it was all male. It was almost all white males. I think there were 16 uh, black students in the in the school of 1,100 students. Um, coming from Pittsburgh, I was pretty much a Midwesterner in most people's eyes. I had one person once ask me if I had to travel through any Indian reservations to get home. Uh, I mean, seriously. Uh, so I... I felt, again, a little bit like an outsider, which I was becoming comfortable feeling. But the other thing that happened was that two weeks before I was to go to Trinity, my father died. And um, it had a, I realize now it had a profound effect on me and that it took me pretty much my whole first year at Trinity to, to deal with the grief of his dying. He had Parkinson's disease. I knew he was, he was fading. But um, on August 12th of 1964, I was upstairs and I heard my mother scream downstairs. I came running downstairs and she said, grab your father. And I took him and we took him to the couch and essentially died in my arms. So two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, I showed up in Hartford, Connecticut, going to Trinity College. So for me, it, it, it was a huge adjustment, adjustment. And I'm incredibly grateful that at Trinity, I found friends who supported me. And I found faculty members who got me out of myself and got me to realize that there was a great world of learning that would help me understand things beyond um, obsessing about why my father had died and why I had been left alone. So that first year was really tough. It was a mixture of feeling feeling unprepared for a, a, a school that was more upper class than I, I guess I knew it would be that way, but it just surprised me. And also uh, to deal with the, um, the, the death of my father. So um, I had a little rocky beginning and then I found my way. You talked about... Um you know, your, your love of baseball when we were chatting earlier. Um, were, were sports an outlet for you as, as a boy? And did, did you play sports at, at Trinity? Um, I, um, as a boy, uh, 
uh, sports were very much an outlet for me. Um, I played everything. I played, well, everything in Atrona Heights, Pennsylvania is football, basketball, and baseball. And uh, because I, my parents sent me to summer camp, I also learned how to play soccer, learned how to wrestle and learned how to swim and, and learned how to play tennis. And so I, um, that, that for me, sports was, a um, really, it was a way to assimilate into American culture. And I feel like I, I felt like when I was on the diamond or on the court that I belonged there. Um, I, uh, I was never a very good athlete. I mean, I, I just loved to do it. And uh, I, I, that's, not, that's not being unduly modest. I wasn't a good athlete. If you ask the people that I played with, they, there's a famous story about a friend of mine went to Washington Jefferson College. And um, one of them, but he was, he later became a doctor, but he happened to be watching a baseball game in which one of my high school classmates was playing got hurt and he, my friend volunteered to take this former uh, baseball uh, player from my high school to, to the hospital to get whatever treatment he needed. And on the way, he asked him where he's from. He said he was from the Toronto Heights. So oh, you must know Walt Harrison. And he, my, this, uh, this young man said, oh, good old Walt, no talent, but lots of hustle. And that's pretty much, that defines what I was like. I played a little freshman baseball at Trinity and realized that even at Trinity, I wasn't going to, even at, a, at that point, it was called college division school. I wasn't likely to go much further. So I stopped after that. But I, kept, I, I still play all sorts of sports. It's a great outlet for me. Well, you know, not having sports to play at Trinity uh, surely freed you up for, for lots of other stuff. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love to talk about, you know, some of the courses and professors that, that really influence you when you're at Trinity and, and that, that you still remember, you know, today. Who, who are some of those that, that really stuck out for you and, and why? So I should say that when I came to Trinity, I was one of those kids who didn't have any idea what he was going to major in, not because nothing interested me, but because everything interested me. So I, I went there with some vague feeling that maybe I would go into uh, foreign service and, and maybe I would major in German. And I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't a very good, I was a great German student at my little high school, but I wasn't a very good German student at Trinity. But I, I, uh, I took a course because my, my cousin John knew George Cooper. He, uh, George Cooper allowed me to take his pretty famous uh, British history course when I was a, a, a first year student, which very few people were allowed to do. And I loved him. I loved the way he made me think about history. And, um, and I think I was a pretty good student. And then I took a course from Eugene Tex Davis, who taught uh, Roman and Greek history. And I loved that as well. And I, I was really quite interested in going into um, history to major in. And I, one, I took a second course with Professor Cooper. And in my first semester sophomore year, we had a paper. We had to write a paper about some unsolvable um, problem in, in British history. And then we had to provide a solution. It was a great intellectual challenge. 
So um, I uh, I chose the topic of whether um, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, had had thrown his wife down a, a flight of stairs to her death so that he could m- marry Queen Elizabeth. And that this is a kind of unknown. No one really knows the um, answer to that question. So I. I remember it was due on, let's say it was due on a Friday and Thursday night at about 2 a.m. I still hadn't solved this problem. And I thought I would, I'd go one way and then the other. And I'd been reading all these books in the library. And finally, I looked up and said, who cares? And I thought, I thought to myself, really, it wasn't that history wasn't interesting. I didn't think, at least for me, that it was asking the big questions that I wanted to ask. So then, somewhat to uh, Professor Cooper's dismay, I decided I might want to major in religion uh, because they asked the big questions, what could be richer than that? And uh, Ted Malk, who I took for both Old and New Testament in, as, my, as a first-year student, uh, it really made me think that, oh, boy, that might be great, great things to do here. And then someone just suggested that I take uh, an American, an intro to American literature class with Paul Smith. And that's changed my life. Paul Smith is the, the single greatest intellectual influence on my life. And he, what was it about him? Because he was a it, personality wise, I think very different than me. But the first thing that attracted to me about him was that when I looked at him, I could see what I wanted to become. I don't mean personally, but intellectually, the way he approached problems, his love of literature, his ability to tease out in his class, um, uh, the the complicated messages of some of the texts we were reading. And um, and I, I, I must have taken four or five more courses with him in my time there. I never ceased to be amazed at how how his mind worked and how he looked at literature. And the the other professor who really uh, influenced me a great deal was John Dando, who taught Shakespeare. And I took a couple of Shakespeare courses with him. Um, And uh, Dando, I, I, I never thought Dando was quite the intellectual uh, source of, um, inspiration for me, but he was personally, the way he really tried to get people in his class to understand Shakespeare and drama generally, it was just amazing. And I I think I learned as much about how to teach from him as anybody. And I can remember he he had a habit of doing something that I think no one would allow faculty to do now. He would pick three or four young men and we would get in his car or on the train and go to New York and he'd take us to dinner and then he'd take us to a Broadway play. And all the way uh, during dinner, we'd talk about what the play would be like and what, you know, what our expectations were. And then on the way back, we'd talk about what we saw and what we thought. And I, um, you know, that, that's a model of what a teacher should be. He, He was just, an incredible, um, incredibly devoted to not only the subject matter, but how to make students learn. Yeah. Um, when you think about the, the time that you were there, you know, the, the late 1960s, 
um, and you graduated in the, the last class at Trinity where there were no, you know, women on campus, first woman. Yes, I, I always say that after I graduated, it was safe to let women on campus. <laughs> <laughs> talk that to me is about, a joke. Talk to me about what the feeling was like on on campus, the student feeling, you know, about all that was happening in, in the country in the late 60s and, you know, what it was like with this lead up to to knowing that that women would be on campus, you know, that fall, the, the fall of 1968. I don't think I knew that, actually, that last part. Um, I don't remember knowing it. Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, they they decided the board decided, but I'm not exactly sure when that they would admit some transfer students to begin with. But I, I don't know that I I don't know that I knew that when I was there. That 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 year, however, was full of turmoil. The 67-68 academic year, and and for me, it was one of the most uh, incredibly um, stressful years. Uh, Two years earlier, so there were there were two or three different forces that um, came to bear on those of us in '68. For me, at least, the most stressful was the Vietnam War. I, I did not believe in the Vietnam War. I felt it was a mistake from a foreign policy point of view. Many of my friends from uh, Natrona Heights had been drafted either out of high school or or shortly thereafter. Some had died in Vietnam, others had been injured. One of my closest friends from, from Atlanta Heights was injured. Two of my closest friends were injured. Um, and so I, um, as early as my sophomore year, I, I knew I, I wanted to avoid being drafted. We had student deferments, but uh, this was before the, the draft lottery. So they had student deferments, but as soon as you had student deferment, ran out, you were being drafted. So, and the only choice in those years was to either go to Sweden, maybe Canada. It wasn't clear whether they would go into Canada and try to get you back, but Sweden or Canada or, 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 or go into the war. And um, I, I remember really the spring of my sophomore my sophomore year i'm sure influenced by paul smith i decided to climb up avon mountain and sit on a stone sort of like henry david thoreau and and uh decide what i should do and and when i was up there i thought you know i uh i don't i don't believe in this war but as a jew this would be less than 20 just about 20 years after the end of world war ii as a Jew, I thought I, I do believe in this country, and it, it did something for, for 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 Jews and for for all of humanity, really, by entering that war. And um, I thought I, I guess I'm an American first, and I'll figure out how to deal with the war. So I decided Trinity had an ROTC, an Air Force ROTC unit, and I decided to join ROTC, from which I. Uh, I was commissioned and went into the Air Force. But the interesting, looking back on it, what was so interesting was at the same time I was in SDS. And I'm rather certain I'm the only 
person, at least at Trinity in those years, who was in SDS and in ROTC. Um, I, I was mostly, um, I was interested in the Vietnam War. I was interested in, in the civil rights movement. Um, I, I told you a little bit about my background. So I obviously felt that there was a, a lot this country could do for civil rights. And then I was interested in, I was, I felt hemmed in by the, the college offerings at the time. And in particular, I, this particular cause of mine was that Trinity should have a sociology department, which they did not have. And they, the faculty would say to us, well, we, we don't think sociology is really a good part of a liberal arts curriculum. And I, and my mother's sister, my aunt, who had also gone to Bryn Mawr, majored in sociology and graduated in 1939. And I thought, damn it, you know, nearly 30 years later, Trinity can do what Bryn Mawr did back then. So I, these are my three causes. And I got swept up into this general milieu of protest at the university or at the college. And I was also um, really, uh, this was all, 68 was also the election year. Was was it, you know, would it be, would Lyndon Johnson run? Then it was Nixon versus eventually Humphrey, but there was Robert Kennedy and, and, um, uh, Eugene McCarthy. So there are all these different um, uh, things were swirling around about politics. And, and so I was part of the group that took over the president's office in protest. And our protest was about uh, accepting more, well, accepting more African-Americans at Trinity. Although one of my colleagues reminded me at our 50th reunion that the the group of of black students who were sort of at the center of this protest called themselves the Trinity Association of Negroes. And they, of course, the, the uh, acronym is TAN. So we, but we took over, we took over the president's office and, and um, I remember being in there wanting the, uh, you know, the, the, the college to rather, um, aggressively try to recruit and admit more uh, black students. And um, I also remember uh, sitting on the steps, we barricaded the board uh, of trustees into a, there's a older boardroom on top of Downs Memorial. We, we closed the door and sat outside and blocked them from coming out. It, it my vague memory, of this is a resolved and it was resolved in almost no Nothing. I mean, we we eventually dispersed, and there. I learned later there was a whole movement trying, at least, to try to keep those of us who participated in that from graduating, which eventually didn't work. But uh, I don't remember that. I think maybe they didn't have my name on the list of people who were in there or something. But um, they were confused because you were doing the Air Force or TC. Probably, I did. I did. This is true. This is that. I'm sorry to tell all these stories. I uh, I had you weren't allowed to miss ROTC class, so I was in the president's office. We found a bunch of sheets or something, and my my friends let me out the back window using these sheets. So I, I ran to my room, put on my Air Force uniform, went down to ROTC class. Class was over. I came back. I worked my way up the sheets and back into the into the president or into that whole area of Williams where the president's office is located. 
And and now and now you're a trustee. And have you ever been barricaded <laughs> into a meeting as a trustee? I have not. But I, when I was at the University of Michigan as a vice president years later, I they gave me the duty of taking care of the students who almost routinely took over the president's office. So I, you know, I think you know what goes around comes around. I, I, uh, I, I took over an office, and then I spent a great deal of my the time at Michigan trying to talk to people who had taken over an office. I might, I'm proud to say that in my time at the University of Hartford, nobody sat in on in the president's office. Um, before we get to that, I, I know right from Trinity, you went you went to Michigan to get a master's degree, but then, if I understand correctly. After that, it's when you took up your commission in right. the Air Force. The, so how did that gave, work? That yeah, they gave us. A, I, I believe there was an. You could get an extra year before you had to go into the Air Force to get a master's degree. And um, although there wasn't any tangible benefit to the Air Force in having somebody with a master's in English instead of a bachelor's in English, they they let me do it. So I went to. Michigan, I actually wrote a letter to whomever the appropriate people in the Pentagon were asking if I could go for my PhD. And they politely wrote back and said the Air Force didn't have any need for people with PhDs in English. But um, so then after that year, um, I had to go into the Air Force. I got I I was not sure um, where I was going, but. So I went and did a little substitute teaching in the same high school I had gone to, waiting to get my orders, and then I went into the Air Force. Where were you? Uh, where were you stationed, and and what were you assigned to do when you were in the Air Force? Well, I protected you. No, you you might have not even been born at the time. I guess maybe you were born. Just maybe. No, I don't think you were. 19, I was born I, in 1973. I, I yeah, no. So I, I protect. I, I was in the Air Force from '69 to '72. So I protected your parents from invasion from Cuba. That's basically. I was stationed. I went to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, to to learn. I was a personnel and administration officer. I'll say a word about that in a minute. And then I was. Then they sent me to a radar squadron in Aiken, South Carolina. And most of the, my time there, well, I was the only non, most of the office, there were five officers and about 116 enlisted men. And, and uh, of the five officers, I was the only one. No, there was a supply uh, logistics kind of person and me were the only two who weren't uh, engineers who were working on radar. Um, but I, um, so I got, the assignment of being a death notification officer. And um, in those years, in that part of the rural South, there were a lot of young men who were killed in the war. So I got to uh, go knock on their parents or their wives' doors and tell them that they had died in Vietnam or Thailand or wherever they were stationed. I think the ones I had were all Vietnam or Thailand. and. Um, I think I made 36 of those visits and um, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And um, it, it taught me a lot about self-discipline and a, a lot about how to, to do things under very tough conditions, but it also scarred me in some ways for the rest of my life. Um, 
So then I was there for 18 months, and then I was transferred to a, a larger base in California um, called um, Mather, not Mather, Air Force Base, same spelling. Um, and there I was put in a larger personnel office. That, that That's a base that trained navigators in those days. doesn't exist anymore. But So I, we had a large, I, mean, I don't know how many people, 30 thousand people or something that were either stationed there or running through there and navigator training and so I, I i had a more specialized personnel job kind of flying a desk as they say in the air force but i um and then i i probably would have gone to vietnam next but um there was a the congress was pressuring the nixon administration this is summer of 72 to uh, have reduction in force and they offered what they called early outs you could get out if you raised your hand so and you weren't in a you weren't a pilot or a navigator and so i i did and i got out my wife i met my wife uh, diana to, in graduate school at the university of michigan um we got married after i learned i wasn't going to vietnam right away and then we um she had taught when we were in Aiken, South Carolina, and then she, having trouble finding a place to teach in California, decided she would just go back to school and get her PhD. And so she had already enrolled at the University of California, Davis, which is 11 miles west of Sacramento, and each where I was stationed. And so when I could get out, I just followed her and went there to get my PhD. Throughout your entire time uh, in the Air Force, was that your plan? Were you thinking you wanted to go back and get a PhD and, oh, and yeah. teach English? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I then I really wanted to go back, and then I really, really, really wanted to go back because I, I, I didn't dislike the Air Force. I liked it, but being a death notification officer, you know, you have to try to think about what you're going to do after this is over. Sure. So um, I, um, I. Uh, you know, I really, I, I knew I wanted to go back when I went in and it just became stronger and stronger. I enjoyed my time in the Air Force. I'm not saying I hated it. I had really, I had some really difficult duty. I also had a lot of fun and I met a lot of really interesting people I never would have met otherwise. You know, I, I was reading that your your dissertation topic uh, for your PhD was about <laughs> baseball. And of yeah. course, you know, Trini's other great baseball scholars is George F. Will, and he's written tons of books about it. But how did you choose, you know, baseball as, as your topic? And, and what did you hope to sort of, you know, solve in, in asking those questions about the sport? Just a word about George Will. I, I like to say that the only, in the only area in which he is more conservative than I am is baseball. Um, I am, um, uh, when I was, so typically, at least in English graduate school, you you study a wide range of things. And then you, when you're getting ready to take what they call the qualifying exam, um, you have to choose a dissertation topic. And so I thought that I was going to write a dissertation on the American pastoral. And I was particularly interested in the works of a later 19th century author named Hamlin Garland. And I went uh, to see a faculty member in English uh, to, as you were supposed to, to discuss possible topic. This man, his name was Jack Hicks, um, 
was uh, an American literature scholar, but also played on a graduate student faculty softball team that I played on. So we had an hour scheduled and we spent maybe 40 minutes talking about Hamlin Garland. And, um, and then he said, okay, sounds like a potential topic. He said, uh, what else are you reading outside of class? And I, outside of what you have to read. And I said, well, um, actually, I've been reading a, a book about baseball folklore. So he asked me about the book and I started talking. He said, tell me what, what it's about. And I started talking to him about it. And he said, um, have you ever thought you could apply some of those uh, thoughts to literature about baseball? And I said, well, no, I hadn't. But let me, so I just started riffing on what I thought might you might be able to do with baseball literature, what I knew of it at the time. Finally looked at me, he said, look, the world does not need another dissertation about Hamlin Garland, but everybody would like to read something about baseball. That's why, that's how I chose it. I, um, when I did it, there had been no other, uh, there'd been no other dissertation on baseball and its place in American culture. Um, just as I was getting ready to publish my dissertation, another woman published a dissertation. It wasn't it was different than mine, but it was also on the topic of baseball and literature. Um, so I, I'm at least at the forefront of that movement. And now there's so much written about it that, uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it because when I was doing it, it was all kind of brand new ground to cover. What was the title of the dissertation? Out of Play, Baseball Fiction from Pulp to Art. And what years did it span? Uh, first uh, baseball novel was Our Baseball Club and How We Won the Pennant in 1884, maybe. And it spanned from that until just prior to when I, uh, actually some novels were written while I was writing the dissertation. So like through 1975 or six. What year was The Natural written? The Natural was written in 1952 by Bernard Malmud. Oh. And that's, that was a rather central part of my dissertation. Yeah. So, you know, earlier on, you, you said you weren't uh, a great baseball player, but then you write uh, this great dissertation on yeah. baseball. And you also sure. said, uh, you weren't a great uh, German scholar, but if I understand correctly, right after your PhD, you went off to Germany. <laughs> you went off to Germany, and you were teaching English at least in Germany, not German. But but what True. what what brought you to 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 Germany after finishing your your work at UC Davis? UC Davis had a um, an exchange with uh, Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany. They would send one uh, student from Germany to Davis who was working on his, his or her dissertation. And Davis would send one student to Germany. And um, I'm sorry, yeah, to Germany. So the, one of my professors, his name was James Woodruff, very close. Another person had a huge impact on my life. Um, he, was, he was the chair of the department and he really controlled all three. They were three different um, exchanges like that for advanced students at Davis. And the, the, basically the way he decided who would go where is you had to walk around a pond on the Davis campus and speak 
to him in the language of where you were going. So there was one in Germany, one in France, and one in Italy. And he could speak those three languages. So he had us. So I, I managed to get the whole way around the, the pond in German, but I couldn't have got, if it was a, if it was a lake, I never would have made. But so he, he talking knew me baseball, like talking me. baseball in German. Correct? No, although he did. We did have times when we talked baseball, but he not then. It was kind of <laughs> pretty simple German. <laughs> Conversational, everyday German. But it was it was that's how I mean, I, I think I think I, I was a very good. Grad, I mean, if I don't say so myself, I was a very good graduate student. They took the better graduate students to go on these exchanges, but they wanted to be sure you could at least speak a little of the language. And that's how they chose it. You know, when you got back from, from Germany, you were having, you know, pretty great success as an English and American studies professor at Colorado college and, and, you know, other places, but then you switched over to being an (laughs) administrator. Um, You know, what, what drew you to, to that role? Why, why change? A group of us used to get together for breakfast in a, in like in the student union, there was a little informal place in student union you could go. And I went there and um, every morning, almost every morning and the same three or four faculty were around the table and we were, we would always discuss every problem of the day. Usually I listened, but one, one morning, we had a basketball coach. So Colorado College is an independent. It doesn't play in a conference. It, it does now. It didn't at the time. Um, Colorado College is essentially like Trinity. In fact, when I was I was teaching at Iowa State, when I got uh, when I had an offer to go interview at Colorado College, I asked one of my colleagues who was a Wesleyan graduate, "What's what's Colorado College like?" And he said, "It's Trinity with mountains." So I, I went out there and, and I was there and I, you know, I was teaching, happily teaching English. And we had a basketball coach who, would, because we were not in a conference, he had to schedule our games. And he, he'd scheduled three games in a row in Illinois. He got his, his students in a van. They'd drive from Colorado to Illinois. They'd play a game on, say, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And then they'd drive back. And... Um, it, we he just scheduled whoever would schedule him, and he happened to schedule three teams that were terrible, and um, who were really good. Rather, we weren't very really good. They beat the hell out of us, like thirty points the first night, forty points the second night. They were fifty points ahead on the third night. He got angry. I think he was just frustrated, and and he got his second technical foul. They threw him out of the. Um, the game and he he was so angry he just took all his team and they left so this was in the early days of usa today and usa today had a big story about the old what happened to the old college try and you know how did this team you know division three colorado college team walks off the court so we were sitting around breakfast the next day or two days later talking about what the college should do i the the president of college who didn't know anything really about sports had done what most presidents would do. He put a committee together to investigate this. I I thought that was the wrong way to do it. You knew what had happened. It wasn't that difficult, but then they, they were, uh, they had a little press conference to announce it. They held the press. So Trinity doesn't have a room like this, but they had a, they held the, press conference in a room in a building that was essentially used for faculty meetings. 
and they just decided to use it. And all these, in those days, all these sports writers were up there. It was no smoking, and they were used to smoking during these press conferences. And I just went, sat in the back. I was curious about what they would do and how this would be reacted to. They gave the coach a kind of slap on the wrist. So the next morning, I'm at this breakfast table telling my colleagues what we should have done instead of that. And um, one of them, one of those colleagues happened to be the vice president for advancement. And the next day I was in my office grading papers and knock on the door and he walks in with the president and says, say, if you know so much about this stuff, why don't you give us a hand? That's how I became an administrator. Wow. I didn't, I didn't expect to do it. It wasn't a plan. I, they get, they made the offer to me. I thought, well, I'll do it for a year and see if I like it. You know, you just went from, you know, the old college try to uh, the classic shut up or put up, right? <laughs> Never thought of it that way, but that's true. Yes. And I, so, I, I want, I wanted to stay there. My wife was teaching at a prep school. Um, it was a good, you know, it's a good way to, 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 and I liked what I was doing and that's, that's how I got into it. You know, when I think of back about my own career, there were many serendipitous moments like that, that, that took me in a, different direction. I'm sure there are a lot of Trinity graduates that can identify with that. You know, we thought we might do one thing and, and then things, circumstances change and, and you end up going a completely different direction and it's, and it's an enjoyable life, enjoyable career. But, you know, chart for me the, the, the course that, that took you from that sort of uh, unexpected, uh, you know, sort of battlefield promotion almost into administration, you know, to Michigan, you know, where you received your MA and, and then on to you know, consulting for some, some various colleges after that, how, how did that path just, just continue was, for you? It was the, uh, uh, it was a slightly different path. So I, uh, I, when I left, when I, when I was at Colorado college, I had gotten about as far as I was going to go in their administration. I felt the president was making a, was making some mistakes that I could have advised him on, but I was reporting to a vice president. I, I asked him, oh, so then I, we, had, we, had, um, we had retained a consulting firm on media relations, actually, and um, they had worked with me. And so uh, one day the, the guy who owned the consulting firm came in and said, would you like to go to work for me? And I thought, well, not, I don't know. And then I started thinking about, well, I'm not going to get anywhere, no, no more advancement, at least at the tender age I was at, um, at Colorado College. So I, I went in and saw the president and asked him if there was any way I could report to him. And he said, no. So then I decided, well, I'll go to this consulting firm. It was called Garing Associates. And we, we did media relations and, and other kinds of public relations consulting for colleges and universities. And they were located in Key, New Hampshire. I went there and I did that for four years. And after about three years, he made me the president of the firm. And I, had, I, I worked for a lot of incredible institutions like Michigan, Indiana, Berkeley, uh, Williams, Smith, Brinar, and uh, University of Virginia. A lot of great institutions. I learned a lot about how higher ed operates. Um, and, but I, wasn't, I didn't feel... Um, I just felt I was always more comfortable in a in an academic community than I was advising an academic institution. And I had 
Michigan was taking up more and more of my time, and I was spending almost three days a week out there. And finally, the president from the, of the University of Michigan asked me if I'd come see him, and I did. And they said, well, what would it take to get you here? So I, it was another kind of, I didn't ask for that. I wasn't looking for it. My father had gone to Michigan. I had gone there. My wife went there. There were about eight other members of our family who went there. So it was in many ways uh, attractive to me. And so I, I went there and spent nine very, nine very happy years there. And was it from Michigan that you were recruited to the University of Harvard? Yeah, again, almost, you know, as you said, serendipity. I, I had <clears throat> I had shared a couple um, searches for other vice presidencies at Michigan. So somebody would leave, at least at Michigan, the habit was you'd, if it was a vice president who was leaving, you'd pick another vice president and have him or her chair the search. And then the president ultimately would make the final decision, but you, you'd narrow people down to the um, to three or four from whom the president could choose. And I'd done two of them and with the same search consultant. And um, she called me one day and said, um, you know, you know, I know you went to Trinity and there's this uh, place in, in Hartford, University of Hartford, and I think you're just what they need. And would you consider it? And honestly, I couldn't remember the University of Hartford from my time at Trinity. I said, well, think about it. That was the year. So this question of race is part of my culture, my, part of my life the whole way through. So in 1988, uh, sorry, 1997, uh, the University of Michigan was challenged by a conservative group about their, um, in their admissions practices. And the argument was that they were um, discriminating against white people. And they, they did it on two levels, on the undergraduate level and on the grad and the law school level. This is a, this case where it was Graz v. Bollinger and uh, Gruder v. Bollinger. And this was a big national story. Uh, New York Times and lots of other places were, was, were writing about it. Um, they wanted someone from the university to speak. So the lawyers said, well, we can't, can't put the president in front of them. We can't put the admissions director in front of them because they're ultimately going to be asked to testify. And we don't want them saying things in an interview that they might have to be asked about in trial. So let's pick that guy. So they, you know, they picked me. And here I was uh, either on campus talking to reporters who went out there or flying around the country to appear on all these television shows with one of the plaintiffs and their lawyer. Um, so I wasn't paying attention. I'd been asked about the University of Hartford, but I just, I, I, you know, the few times I could clear my head, I wasn't, I didn't want to think about that. Finally, the search consultant called me and said, look, you have to either submit an application by tomorrow or I can't have the committee consider you. I think you'd be a good candidate. I really hope we'll do this. I was tired. I went to bed. I woke up at four in the morning and decided, well, I'll, I'll write an application letter and send it in. That's how I got to the University of Hartford. Um, but then you ultimately got, you know, selected as, as the, the fifth president at the University of Hartford. You, you were there for 20 years. Um, what was your goal when, when you first started there. And then I'm going to ask you after that, you know, what did you look back on when you were leaving in terms of the, 
the things that you were able to accomplish from, from what you set out to do? The, the, the University of Hartford had a very difficult time in the um, 1990s when the New England miracle collapsed. A lot of their, um, their student base and their donor base collapsed with it. And um, they, they needed someone who could raise their profile and, and raise their admissions. And I think they chose me largely, well, they chose me because I had gone to Trinity. I think they chose, that's one big attraction to them. I think they chose me because I knew something about how to raise the profile of educational institutions. Um, and uh, so uh, when I went there, I thought what I have to do is increase our admissions. And I, there was a lot of work, a lot of things that, should have been done in the 1990s, but for lack of funds, weren't done at the, at the university. And so I thought the other thing I need to do is raise money and, and help to, to restore the campus. And, and um, those are, I think those are the two things that attracted me to it. The other thing that attracted me to it is that it, University of Harvard is, it has a wide range of students, but it, it has a lot of first generation college students. And I, that, that spoke to me as a, a mission that I could believe in. And, and so I, that's what I did when I went there. Um, what did I think of nearly two decades later when I was retiring? What did I think I had achieved? I certainly achieved both of those goals. We had significantly increased the admissions profile. The university had grown by about 750 students. We had grown from just just around 4,000 to 4,750. Um, we had grown some graduate programs. I, we either built or renovated 17 different buildings. So I, I had done what I had set out to do. What I did that I, the two things that I'm proudest of, however, well, and I think people would also say that I took an institution that was, had a lot of insecurity financially and made it pretty secure financially. Not I all by myself, but I and my administration. And um, I think um, the two things that I'm really proud of is that we improved the um, academic profile of the students that we admitted, and we and we helped them get even further during their four years there. I hope every university or college president would think that. But the other thing I did was. Um, dramatically increased the numbers of people of color on our student body. When I got there, 13% of the student body was for people of color. When I retired, 40% of the student body were people of color. That was, that was intentional. And it was intentional not only because it was the right thing to do, it was also a good thing for the college, the university to do, because we it, it dawned on me that most of the college-ready students were coming from middle-class backgrounds and below and coming from communities of color. And so we could build our missions profile on our student body and do well for the university and do very well for those students. You have, uh, you have this whole other part of your career um with the NCAA, 
um, again, this, this, this kid who loves sports and, and to do anything, you know, at the level of the NCAA had to be exciting, but how did that, how did that start? How, how did they come to, to lean on you to help them with some of their initiatives? <laughs> in that, I think it's still this way. In, in those days, um, division one board is, um, is comprised of one president from each conference. It's not exactly that way. It's there, there are some conferences that have, have to take turns, but when it was my conference's turn in my, in uh, 2002, this is really the truth. I'm not being overly modest. No other president wanted to do it. And I said, well, heck, I know something about sports. I'd like to do it. I'd also, to be honest, at Michigan, I'd also, the athletic department at Michigan reported to the president, but the president's generally too busy to worry about day-to-day happenings in the athletic department. So I spent a lot of time with athletic directors helping them through problems and advising them. So I knew something about athletics and I thought, well, what, you know, I'd love to do this. So I, they elected me, like my peers in the conference elected me, I went off to the board and I got there just about the time they were, the board had started before I joined it to start thinking about raising the academic uh, opportunities and, and um, successes of student athletes at the division one level. And um, I, I joined a little working group of the board that was working on that because I thought, I don't know anything about what the recruiting rules should be for volleyball, but I do know something about academics and I can help with this. And uh, over time, over a year, year and a half time, I became pretty intimately involved with that group. And then they decided to actually set up a committee uh, uh, of people who would work on improving the academic profile of student athletes. And one of the uh, other people on the board said, gee, I think a president should chair that committee. And I said, yes. And then she turned to me and said, what about you? So I, um, I ended up chairing what's called, was then called the Committee on Academic Performance. It's now called the Committee on Academics for, for 10 years. And um, we managed to significantly improve the academic success of student athletes. And when I, when I stepped down from that role, over 20,000 student athletes had graduated from college who would not have graduated from college had we not put in these reforms we did. And by now it's close to 40,000. So if you ask me what I was most proud of, it was that. But I also had the really great good fortune of serving on the board when Miles Brand was the chief executive officer. And and Miles and I became friends and we I think we thought alike about how to run intercollegiate athletics. And and then not too long after it, so in night in 2005, I became chair of what's now called the Board of Governors, so the overall board i that's a two-year term so i did that for two years and then i went back to 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 running the committee on academics so i i that's how i did it i think i left um i left feeling quite fulfilled at what i had done i realized that the ncaa is a it's a a flashpoint for a lot of people and it's certainly not a perfect organization but 
the things I did there, I think, did a lot to improve the experience of student athletes. You know, I'd, I'd be remiss if in talking to you, I, I didn't bring up yet a, another sports organization that you were involved in. And, and that, of course, is is Capital Squash, because how, how can two <laughs> Trinity graduates get together and not talk about squash, talk the, about squash. the sport we're most famous for? Um, but on a serious note, that, that that's, uh, you know, an organization that uses the sport to reach, um, you know, inner city kids. And how did, how did that, you know, come about and, and what was your role with, with Capital Squash? It still is a role with Capital Squash. So I, um, when I, when I was at Hartford, one of my colleagues there, uh, who was also a Trinity uh, graduate knew that I had I'd learned, I'd, we must have had a conversation sometime and I, she knew I played squash at Trinity. I didn't play varsity squash at Trinity. I learned how to play the game. I didn't know anything about it. I played intramural squash at Trinity, but I learned how to play squash and liked it and played it probably for the next 30 or 35 years. Um, and uh, also never well. I was no better at squash than I am at baseball or any other sport, but I loved doing it. So I must add some conversation with her. And so when I was getting ready to retire, she said, um, you know, you might want to think about this organization that's located on Trinity's campus called Capital Squash. Meg Taylor, who's the executive director, came over to talk to me and I joined their board and now I chair their board. And, and I chair it because not, not, I like squash. I'm, I'm happy to be associated with the sport again. But I, um, what, it's their mission of educating inner city youth mostly within a half mile radius of Trinity's campus. Um, we, we take young people from uh, who start off in fourth grade and with the intention of if when they get to going into ninth grade, they have a chance to go to either independent schools or, or better high schools and then eventually go to college. And um, it's really, um fundamentally heartwarming to watch these young people reacting to the discipline of squash which they learn on trinity's courts and then learn through our tutoring and mentoring programs which are held in the, the tanzel room in, in the ferris edition um, they learn how to better themselves in academics and something you can't be in the program unless you uh, qualify for free or reduced lunch. So these are all poor kids, um, many immigrant kids, almost all. They're either immigrants or students of color, all the kids in this program. And to watch how they, um, to watch how they respond to that is, is just terrific. So it's part of my commitment to trying to help underserved populations get an education. So, Capital Squash is one thing I do, and another thing I do in retirement is I am a co-chair of something called Hartford Promise, which provides scholarships for Hartford youth to go to college. And we have, I'm not sure what the number is, seven or nine kids right now are at Trinity through Hartford Promise who are inner city kids from Hartford. So I'm um, just part of my, my fundamental belief that one of the most essential parts of social change is education. You've done so much in a in in your career, Walt. When you look back, what defined success for you in in the positions you held over the course of your career? What what were some of the definitions of 
success for you in the various roles you held? Um, I think everything I did, uh, the one thing that I would, that I considered success was being able to help other people have a better life. Even, even death notification, I felt somebody has to do this. I can do it compassionately and well. Most of my career in education, I felt that I would judge myself by how much I had improved the lives of others. That's, I think that's how I would judge success. If I had a, in Jewish uh, terms, there's a term tikkun olam, to repair the world. In other words, to make the world a better place. And, I, and, and that's the way I judge success. I, um, and I, that's what I look back on and with some pride. That's a wonderful definition of success. Well, um, thank you for sharing that. It's been a great talk. Um, but before I let you go, um, we do this little thing at the end of all these uh, that we call the Beyond the Summit Fast Five. Everybody gets okay. the same five questions. And the only rule is you can't think, you just need to answer. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay. Number one, what did you want to be when you arrived at Trinity that first day? Huh. Uh, wow. What did I want to be? I wanted to be a college student. <laughs> I, I, that's what I wanted to be. Perfect. Number two, What's one thing that happened at Trinity that your colleagues never knew about you? <laughs> Gee, I mean, some colleagues probably knew most of most of something about what happened to me. Um, well, the thing I okay, so here it is. I mean, this isn't a very funny thing. I uh, I. I went to a, a a girl who I was really um, in love with had thrown me over and I had to go to, I think it was junior prom. I, I had a date, but it was mostly, I was still kind of upset about this other um, young lady. And I got drunk out of my mind and I went over, I wandered over to uh, the top of the rocks and I stood there thinking about whether I should jump off and end my life. And I didn't. I turned around and walked away. But I've never told people about it. It's not something that I would brag about. But that's the one thing nobody Trinity would have known I ever did. Wow. Number three, when you look back on the narrative of your life, was there a moment at Trinity that was instrumental in you becoming who you are today? Yeah, walking into Paul Smith's class, mm -hmm. I I, um, I became a professor because of what if what effect he had on me from day one from walking into that classroom, and I that changed my life forever. Number four, what advice would you give to a current Trinity student who aspires to follow in your footsteps? <laughs> To try something else. Um, I, I would, uh, uh, what I would say is, um, you don't set, for, for example, if my, by my footsteps, you mean become a college or university president. <clears throat> I think I would say, don't, 
don't think about that. Think about what is it that you love intellectually and want to pursue for the rest of your life. And it doesn't really matter whether that's biology or history or English or sociology or you name it. You've got to do that first and you've got to get good at that before you can go on and do something better. And um, so fall in love, whatever you fall in love with intellectually, pursue it with every, every ounce of your passion. And number five, the last question. If the Trinity Bantam, our beloved mascot, had been one of your trusted advisors in life, what advice would you have sought from the beloved bird? How can I hit a curveball? <laughs> I, I might have had a much better career in baseball if, if the Bantam had just whispered to me how to hit a curveball. I, I I love the image of, of of the bantam standing behind you <laughs> saying, "Don't don't swing at that wall. Don't swing." <laughs> yeah, watch the spin or something like that. You know, that's all I needed. Now it's not all I needed. He would have also had to teach me how to run faster. <laughs> you know, just hitting a curveball would have made a major difference in my life. Well, thanks again for your time. This has been really enjoyable, and and I really appreciate it. For me too. Thanks. This episode of Beyond the Summit was brought to you by the Trinity College Office of Communications. Special thanks to Caroline DeVoe, Ellen Buckhorn, and Mary Mahoney for production assistance. This episode was produced by Helder Mita. A big thank you to Paul Sullivan, our alumnus host. The theme music, Winter in Liverpool by Mulaha, licensed by Musicbed. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. Thank you.